Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby, a work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We are located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. Our phone number is 859-371-2095. You can also visit us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, that you may grow thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. I am Greg Littmer. I am one of the elders at the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ, and I thought that today's episode would be the first of two episodes. This one entitled Eliminate the Negative, and tomorrow's will be Accentuate the Positive. Both will address the way that we live. If we are careful and are observant, those of us who are adults can learn a great deal from children. The Lord taught us as much in a number of different places. Perhaps the most well-known of these is found in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, when he was asked who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4, we find these words. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, Unless you become converted, and like little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We can notice that when Jesus was asked this question, he did not point to some mighty warrior or to some man of great wealth or worldly wisdom, not even to the religious leaders of the Jewish nation. What he did was to take a little child, and say that we must humble ourselves and become as a little child if we desire to be considered great by God. However, in Matthew 11, verses 16 and 17, something that is childlike is spoken of in a much less complimentary way. That passage says, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. What was his point? Simply that that generation were acting like children who could not decide what they wanted to play. If some said, let's play like we're having a celebration, others were not satisfied with that. So then, if they suggested, let's play like we're at a funeral, others were not satisfied with that. They were being childish, and we expect children to be childish. But the Lord's point was that the adults of his generation were being just as childish. They didn't know what they wanted either. Look at verses 18 and 19 of the same chapter. For John came neither eating or drinking, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. John came living an austere lifestyle, and they didn't like it. Jesus came eating and drinking, and they didn't like that. So there are some childlike qualities that we must adopt, but at the same time, there are also some childlike qualities that we must put off. We perhaps should refer to those as childish qualities. Let's go to the second chapter of 1 Peter and look at verses 1 and 2. 
It tells us, therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Note that the second chapter begins with the words, therefore, a most significant word. The word therefore tells us that God's word is rational and reasonable. It also tells us that God's word is practical. It doesn't only speak in the abstract, but it sets forth facts in an understandable way and then says, therefore, or because these things are so, you ought to live or act in a certain way. Therefore, refers back to what was just written. So here in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, therefore, refers back to the things that Peter had just written. Let me explain it this way. If we go back to chapter 1 and verse 21, we will find that, therefore, essentially means that because we believe and hope in God, who raised Jesus from the dead, verse 22, because we have purified our souls in obedience to the truth for sincere love of the brethren, verse 23, because we have been born again, verse 24, because flesh is going to pass away like grass, and verse 25, because the word will abide forever, there are some things that we need to put aside, and there are some things that we need to do. As we look at Second Peter or First Peter chapter two and verse one, the word for putting aside was literally used to refer to discarding clothing. We could say that just as we discard filthy and defiled garments, there are some things that we as Christians just need to get rid of. I may have mentioned this before in a podcast, but I'll mention it again. When I was in high school, the father of a girl I knew owned a great, very large real estate company in Cincinnati. He not only sold houses, he also owned a large number of apartment buildings. Most of them were in less than desirable areas. I got the job of going into the basement of these buildings when he bought them and cleaning them out. One day I went into about a 15-unit apartment building into the basement and it was filled with junk. There was an incinerator down there, and he gave me permission to start a fire in it to burn the junk. When I started that fire, what had been a lightly colored brick suddenly became dark brown and almost pulsating. It took me a minute to figure out what had happened, but when I did, it made my skin crawl. That incinerator was covered with roaches who had been living in there and got upset when I started the fire. They got on me and on just about everything else. Nothing would do for me but to discard those clothes. I wasn't going to do any good in my mind to wash them. I had to get rid of them. Over and over again in the New Testament, the same figure is used. Not the figure of roaches crawling all over people, but the idea that there are some things that Christians just flat need to get rid of when we become Christians and never put them on again. Peter mentions five of them, and for the remainder of our time in this episode, we're going to look at each one as we seek to eliminate the negative. The first is malice. Malice is evil of all kinds, but particularly an evil disposition and the desire to do injury to others. It is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8 in regard to purging the church there of the individual involved in the sin of fornication. The church has the responsibility to purge itself of immoral members who refuse to repent for essentially two reasons, one for the sake of the immoral member and two for the good of the entire congregation. 
Action must be taken to stop the malignancy of the sin from spreading. So it must be never done out of malice. It must never be done to get even or to show somebody. As a matter of fact, if such discipline is carried out with malice, those doing the discipline are in at least as bad a shape spiritually as the one who is being purged. In 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 20, we are told to be childlike in some respects and not to be childlike in others. Paul wrote, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil or malice be babes, but in your thinking be mature. Children may be mischievous, but they are not by nature evil. They may do some wicked things in imitation of others, but malice would not be what motivated them. The same word is translated wickedness in Acts chapter 8 verse 22. Simon the sorcerer was told to repent of his sin. He had an evil disposition of heart. He was scheming to get ahead. Rather than to try to cover up such an evil disposition, Simon was told to get rid of it. We cannot go to heaven if we are malicious. Malice must be put off, discarded and laid aside like a worn out filthy garment. The second thing Peter mentioned in Second Peter, or First Peter, chapter two and verse one, that must be put aside by the Christian was guile. This also must be eliminated, cast off, and buried. The word guile basically means deceit. It refers to using bait to ensnare another. One who uses guile is crafty, slick, and tricky. Unfortunately, this sort of thing is often applauded by the world. In business, it is often referred to as bait and switch. Get a customer in with a ridiculously low advertised price, be sold out of that item, or work very hard to switch them to something more expensive. Years ago, I worked at a snack shop selling big pretzels and soft drinks and such like. We were constantly being warned about quick-change artists, people who would pay for a 50-cent pretzel with a $20 bill and talk so fast and make so many changes that he could walk away with his $19.50 change as well as his original $20, and you'd be standing there scratching your head thinking, what just happened? Well, that's one form of guile. Peter is telling us that this kind of thing must be put away. A Christian is to be completely open, honest, and above board. We are not to have anything up our sleeve when we look someone in the eye. When we say no, we mean no, and when we say yes, we mean yes. Nathaniel was that kind of person. Jesus said of him in John chapter 1 verse 47, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Back in 1 Peter chapter 2, this time in verse 22, we find Peter writing of Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit or guile found in his mouth which is simply to say that when he spoke, there was no deceit, no hidden motive, no lying. Jesus did not play carelessly with the truth. Did you ever know someone that you just couldn't be sure they were telling you the truth any time they opened their mouth? Then if they got caught in their deceit, saying something like, oh, I was just kidding. Did you know the Bible speaks of that very thing? In Proverbs chapter 26, verses 18 and 19, we read, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death, so is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, Was I not joking? Brethren and friends, one particular area where all guile must be eliminated is in what we teach and how we teach it. 
In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul wrote these words, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as men pleasing, but God, who examines our hearts. Do you know that the largest denomination in the world that claims to worship Jesus has something that is known as mental reservation? Let me tell you what it is, for I believe it is a classic example of God. I have in my library a moral theology textbook that teaches this. This is what it says. Quote, A person is permitted to use mental reservation when a just secret must not or need not be divulged to an unauthorized inquirer. In mental reservation, the deception results because of the listener's unwarranted conclusion from misinterpreted premises. I guess when you look at that the first time, it almost sounds okay until you see it in actual practice. From another book authorized by that same denomination in its section on mental reservation, it says, A few examples will illustrate our teaching. An importunate visitor who has called repeatedly at my home and borrowed money from me which he never dreamed of repaying is told by my intelligent servant, my master is not at home. Do not the usages of modern society make it clear that I am not at home to him? In other words, he could be sitting right there, but go ahead and lie. Does that sound like let your communication be yes, yes, and no, no to you? Another well-known denomination, which is especially known for doing a great deal of door-to-door work in the past, has taught the doctrine of what they call ecclesiastical warfare, which simply means that in discussions of religion they were permitted to lie to attempt to win someone to their way of thinking. I have known of situations where brethren have used an argument in discussion or in debate that they knew was invalid, but did so just to win a point. All of these things are characteristic of guile and must be put away. If something is true, we don't have to resort to sophistry, questionable arguments, and outright guile to support it. Going back to First Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, we find hypocrisy. Well, what is a hypocrite? Jesus gave a simple definition in Matthew 23 verse 3 when he said of the Pharisees, For they say things and do not do them. If we want to see the Lord's evaluation of a hypocrite, all we have to do is look down at verse 33 of that same chapter, where he wrote, You servants, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? The whole of the 23rd chapter of Matthew is a scathing rebuke of hypocrisy. Let's go to Matthew 6, where the Lord dealt with three different types of hypocrites. In verses 2 and 4, Jesus spoke of the hypocritical almsgiver. This man said and did not. He made a show of giving to God and then did not give to God. Oh, he gave, but he gave to win public approval. Jesus called it hypocritical. In verses 5 through 7, Jesus spoke of a man at prayer. He looked so pious, standing on the street corners and in the synagogues, but he wasn't praying to be heard of God. He was praying to be heard of men. And quite frankly, that is who he was addressing it to. When we pray, we pray to God, not to have others comment on the beauty of our prayer or to appear to be so very pious. 
Then in verses 15 and 16 and 17, Jesus spoke of the fasting hypocrite. Again, this man let everyone know what he was doing because his purpose was to call attention to himself, not to make a sacrifice for God. In all of these, the individual said and did not. He was doing something, but he was not doing what he claimed. His religion was a show. Peter said, put it aside. Back in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, we find that Peter was not done. He also mentioned envy. What a nasty thing that is. Truly one of the deadliest of sins because it is so easily fallen into. I want to notice something about this sin. In Mark chapter 15 verses 9 and 10, we are told, And Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had delivered him up because of envy. Jesus was delivered up because of envy. My friends, envy can destroy a life. It can destroy every relationship. It can destroy a family. But worst of all, it will destroy a person's relationship with God. Proverbs 14 and verse 30 calls it rottenness to the bones. It is a cancer that eats away without satisfaction. The only way to get rid of it is to cut it out of our lives. As Peter said, put it aside. Finally, Peter demands that we put aside all slander. Now what would that include? What about gossip? And as the King James translates it, evil speaking. This word is elsewhere translated in the King James as backbiting. It is talking about the defamation of character. Have you ever noticed that some folks have something bad to say about every person whose name comes up? I don't like to be around people like that. It used to be that I wouldn't stay around people like that. Now I feel the need to clearly tell them that what they are doing is wrong. I personally try to say nothing if I cannot say something good. Sometimes I fail in this, but in truth, I would much rather have something good to say, and I believe that we first of all should all look for the good. It makes me feel very good when I am told something good that an individual said about me. My opinion of that person goes up immediately as I suddenly consider them to be a person of great insight and wonderful clarity of thought. But nonetheless, all of these things are clearly opposite from the disposition and attitude that we are to have. In none of these attitudes or actions is sincere love of the brethren demonstrated. Practicing any of these things prohibit us from being able to fervently love one another from the heart. Thus they must be put aside. Let's eliminate the negative. Thanks for listening. Listen again tomorrow.